This is Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Primal Screen is about movies, from the ones on the big screen to the ones you stream. Hope you enjoy the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. Hello and welcome to Primal Screen, a triple R film criticism show and podcast. A huge thank you to Phoebe Squared for the last three hours of MAPS. Uh, I'm Sally Christie and just for a change of pace, I will be your host for tonight's show. Joining me in the virtual studio is the wonderful Paul Anthony Nelson. How are you, Paul? I am great, Sally. Lovely to hear you in the host chair. I know you had a nice relaxing week not preparing for this. (laughs) Other than a couple of hectic movies. Yeah, yeah, some nice relaxing movies in here tonight. <laughs> we um, also have the honour of being joined by a very special guest. We have film historian and author Lee Gambon. Welcome, Lee. How are you? I'm good. So Lee has just published tonight on a very special episode, A History of When Sitcoms Sometimes Got Serious, Volumes 1 and 2. Um, so, yeah, congrats on that, Lee. Lots Thanks. of good stuff happening. <laughs> Thank you. It was the longest book to put out. Um, it was- because, yeah, just because of um, our, my beautiful contributors, which is fine. <laughs> I did this with one of them. <laughs> yeah, you're one of them. That's right. Yeah. I you did, did this with Alex and stuff. I did this with Alex the other week. I have to. I have to call it your your magnum opus, Lee. Because oh, uh, yeah. Alex's Thousand Women in Horror was her magnum opus, and so far this is yours. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Yes, and we they both released very quite, you know, closely together. Her book's magnificent. But, yeah, it was initially going to be one book, but the publisher's like, nah, let's do two volumes. This is too much. Wasn't, wasn't it too big to actually bind as one volume? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that was the problem. So, yes, thanks for joining us again, Lee. I think this is your second time on the show, so it's a delight to have you back. Thank you. Um, On tonight's show, we're celebrating films that are turning 40. So we're going to take a trip back to 1980 where Blondie's Call Me was top of the charts, The Empire Strikes Back was reigning supreme at the box office and Kramer versus Kramer was cleaning up at the 52nd Academy Awards. Um, we've chosen three absolute gems tonight to dis- uh, from 1980 to discuss and they are cruising ordinary people and Maniac. Uh, I feel like we have quite a lot to talk about tonight, so I think we'll get straight to it. Join us in the living room for our first film of the evening. How would you like to disappear? Disappear? Go undercover. You know this man? Who's he? These victims are all the same physical type. What about him, Skip? Late 20s, 140, 150 pounds. 
Dark hair, dark eyes. Have you ever seen him before? I want to send you out there to see if you can attract this guy. How where? A psychopath is scouring New York City clubs and viciously slaying gay men. A young detective, Steve Burns, played by Al Pacino, is ordered to don leather attire, hang out at the city's S&M joints and keep an eye out for the killer. But Steve becomes immersed in club hopping and begins to identify with the subculture more than he expected. Meanwhile, Steve behaves distantly around his girlfriend, Nancy. The police force's homophobia becomes apparent and the killer remains at large. Directed by William Friedkin of Boys in the Band and The Exorcist fame, um, Paul, cruising was your choice for a film from 1980 to celebrate. So what do you love about it? Uh, let me count the ways. Um <laughs> I just make sure I get the right handkerchief. Um, <laughs> firstly, this the grimy, lived-in, worn-out, dirty old New York City of '79 aesthetic is everything to me. Mm-hmm. I just I, I love it. Um, I, any film with that kind of aesthetic, I'm just I'm halfway there. Yeah, secondly, I'm, I'm with you on that, Paul. Definitely, hundred uh, percent. Secondly, it's. And I only saw it for the first time about three years ago, and I'd heard about it for years. It was this sort of mythic film that was really hard to find for for a while. Um, and as watching it again, it just reiterated that it's such a disarmingly frank cultural snapshot of a subculture that was rarely, if ever, seen on mainstream film, being hardcore underground gay S and M clubs, um, which also provides this evocative and especially vulnerable backdrop to a serial killer thriller. Um, the, the other thing I love about it is it's like it's bo- it's borderline, if not totally, a horror movie, mm. um, as well as as a serial killer thriller. Um, but I think the film a- a- has a great empathy for the community that's being preyed on, um, and it's just this psychologically fascinating portrait of a man, and not insignificantly, an NYPD cop who's forced to confront who he is, his sexuality, his own self-deception and self-loathing. And also, as you say, the homophobia, that sort of learned homophobia of the police department mm-hmm. um, and his own upbringing, I guess. As he dives deeper into a world he finds undeniably alluring. Um, it's it's so pr- refreshing to see Pacino play someone naive and not yeah. in control and shaky and um, not experienced, not even completely stable, struggling to figure himself out. It's 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 so rare that we get to see Pacino play a knife, and, and he's totally one in here. And finally, like, although I know some of its narrative, shall we say, ambiguity was forced upon by production issues and heavy cuts, like apparently some 40-odd minutes were cut out of this, um, a lot of it leather bar footage, Um but it's elusive, but that narrative ambiguity and that kind of elusive nature, it's almost playing games with you, adds to the fragility of Pacino's character's state of mind and to the psychological territory that, that Friedkin is is really um, try, uh, going to explore here. I just, there's something about the feel of this film that just I just want to sink into um, mm. as, as kind of dangerous and, and, and but also, yeah, um, yeah, almost exotic as it feels. Yep. And plus, Willie DeVille's It's So Easy, which we're not playing tonight, is a banger. Sorry, Paul. (laughs) (laughs) I'll make it up to you. Sorry. And also, it's the first of two films tonight to feature the wonderful uh, Joe Spinell. 
So I know. Yeah. I, I totally forgot that he was actually in this film until I was rewatching it. I was like, oh, we've got a Joe Spinell double happening. Um, <laughs> Lee, I know that you're a fan of the film Cruising. Uh, yeah. Um, I, the, the thing that's really interesting to me is that it's sort of um, bookshelves Fridkin doing a, another major gay classic that's a very pivotal, important film, the film adaptation of the Mark Crowley play Boys in the Band, which I think is a masterpiece um, on par with something like The Exorcist that he did, you know, a couple of years later. Cruising <coughs> is kind of like the flip of that. It's kind of, um, you know, something that sort of is a response to that. Um, and both films and both works obviously sparking a lot of protests and controversy, etc., which I'm sure we'll talk about. But I, yeah, I do love cruising. I love its aesthetic. Um, Paul, you talked about New York at the time. Obviously, it's, you know, it's something that's quite engaging. You know, people of our generation seem to just love love that and gravitate <laughs> to it. No, um, it's, it's really funny. Everyone really just Yeah. Do you know, it's like, really just, 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 just sidebar. Love it. There's a really interesting, I just want to sidebar quick, just because Paul made my brain think of this. In the bandwagon, the Vincent Minnelli film, there's a sequence where um, Fred Astaire goes to what was his old neighbourhood and it's all changed and he longs for the New York of that period, like earlier. <laughs> so it's kind of like what we're doing now. So yeah. I think like Fred Astaire's, you know, he foreshadowed this. But, um, yeah, so cruising for me, one of the other major aspects to the film that I really love is its connection to Jarlo. It's kind of like this amazing Jarlo film. It's got, you know, the, the black leather and the gloves and the, the, the hidden killers and the POVs and all that stuff is really part of that kind of fabric of that aesthetic. But also just its its griminess and its kind of ugliness and also the characters within it that sort of pepper and framework his world. So, for instance, Karen Allen and as his girlfriend, the last shot, that really evocative shot of her donning the hat and glasses as if this kind of culture of the leather bars has infiltrated the straight world. Um, the Don Scardino character, who's kind of like, um, you know, Pacino's, I guess he's kind of got unrequited love for him There's because he kills him. Well, it's alluded to that he's killed him or someone's mm-hmm. killed Don Scardino. But yeah. th- that kind of friendship that they connect with is really lovely to watch as well unfold on screen. But, yeah, it's it's a heavy film. Like, it's a hard-hitting film and I just love its sort of complexity. And as you've mentioned, Paul, it's ambiguity. It doesn't really give you answers. I also really loved um, rereading Vito Russo, Russo's write-up on it where he talks about how there was a wave of movies at the at that period like this and The Fan, et cetera, where sensitive kind of um, theatre-loving queens, he referred to them, became knife-wielding maniacs. And I think his quote is like, all you need to do is find you know, a record of Gypsy in their bedroom and you know who the killer is. <laughs> so <laughs> that could you know Russo's, and like, how did, was he initially a- against cruising when it first came out? Yeah, or, yeah. He, yeah. Thought, he thought he was, you know, part of the ACT UP movement and, um, mm-hmm. you know, the whole thing where they protested it. He was kind of over it. Um, but I feel like in his writing, he sort of has a reverence to it still as well. Yeah, I think yeah, it's kind of yeah. a film that, you know, you walk into it and you have a definite feeling for it. I mean, I've seen footage from ACT UP, the protests uh, it was sent, that was sent to me, this amazing um, Super 8 footage, no sound. Um, of the protests, they were massive and it was, you know, stop the movie cruising. And at the same mm-hmm. time, Windows was out, which was like a psychotic lesbian film with Elizabeth Ashley preying on poor old Talia Shire. And that movie was also protested and picketed. It was smash Windows, stop the movie cruising. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, you hear those stories of the, the those activist groups stuffing up the sound, um, you know, doing all their they did the, They did the same, like, with Basic Instinct when that yeah. was being filmed, that thing where they had, they had honk horns and things like that when they were filming so that, um, you know, that they, <laughs> they couldn't continue. They'd have to keep redoing things. So, mm. yeah. Yeah. But it no, always I, made, I, me, I, made me wonder whether Vito Russo uh, came around to it later on or... Like, like with distance away from... Yeah, well, I mean, there was the 10 more years of his life, really. He died in the in the 1990, I think, um, of AIDS. But, yeah, that's a really interesting point, Paul. Um, but, yeah, I, there's a really cool doco, I think it's live on YouTube, about the protests of cruising, and it's amazing. Mm-hmm. And you get to see um, uh, theatre owners dealing with them and, deal, you know, it's, it's amazing. So it's a really good thing to check out. But I like that whole period... <laughs> of the kind of psychotic uh, queer villain um, that's kind of like comes back full circle from the 40s. So, you know, if you look at the history of queer characters, they start off as males, that is, they start off as benign clowns and, you know, sissy sort of helper characters. And then the 40s hits and you get, you know, Peter Laurie and Maltese Falcon, et cetera, blah, blah. And then when you get to something like the late 70s, early 80s, it goes back to that. So you have things like Freebie and the Bean, which has a killer, you know, um, cross-dressing character. You have Looking for Mr. Goodbar, which is about straight cruising, and she's end- she ends up getting killed by a gay man. So it's kind of a, a, a Diane Keaton's character. Spo- sorry, spoiler alert, but if you know the story. <laughs> that's so, that's okay. uh, but, yeah, there's all, there's all this stuff that was happening, the fan I mentioned. But, yeah, it's an interesting kind of zeitgeist in that period, and it's a, it's a, it's a powerful film. And I think you and I, Paul, were talking about it earlier. Um, it's like right on the cusp of AIDS and the AIDS pa- um, epidemic, and it doesn't refer to AIDS. It's like Yeah, mm-hmm. it's interesting because when I was re-watching that, um, my partner said the same thing. He said, oh, this was just before, like just before the AIDS ec- epidemic mm. happened. And it was, what, it released a year, a year before? Like really, it, like yeah, because yeah, oh, grids, I'm grids was around, like grits, a mm. gay, gay related, yeah, 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 uh, was happening. No one talked about it, so yeah. you know, it was like the cusp of it. Mm. Mm. But it does feel like AIDS before AIDS, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah like in that sort of, and and the shifting identity of the killer is something. I mean, it's probably not a spoiler to say because I mean we don't say who, but but yeah, it's <laughs> okay, something. It's, it's forty. It's forty years old. It's okay. <laughs> Well, I haven't seen Looking for Mr. Goodbar yet, so. Oh, sorry. <laughs> the best. But- you, really, you'd love it, Diane Keaton. I think when I was last on your show, I talked about it again. <laughs> I linked we'll it to fame to, somehow. I'll have to get you on to talk about it. But, um, yeah, I really I, I love Cruising. I think it's such an incredible film. And um, I think it feels like a, a real ris- like a, a risky film for William Friedkin. To, to make like it, it feels like this was all what I guess always going to be received in a negative way at the time of its release it, it feels like he was kind of I don't know obviously not intentionally setting it up for that but it feels like a very risky thing for him to do at that point in his career but um yeah, I, I totally agree with you, Paul, where I feel like as time has passed and you can see why people, this film was controversial and you can see why, you know, a gay community is saying this does not represent the the whole of us, but I really feel like that it, it doesn't represent the gay community in a negative way. I, I don't feel like that. Um, 
I, I feel like it, you know that there is there is one killer in it, and it's not implying that all of these people are bad. I do think that it's empathetic in that way, and um, yeah, it's really lovely to see Pacino in somewhere where something where he is not this kind of big macho man that, you know, he's this confused sort of naive guy and how quickly he goes into this as well with Paul Savino's character at the start and he's like, do you want to go do this undercover thing? And he's just like, yeah, okay, all right, let's do it, let's do it. And it's just like, oh, this sounds really dangerous and scary. And, Lee, what you were saying about us having this nostalgia for New York at this um, this period in cinema, which so many people, myself included, do, um, if we were really there, it was really scary, dangerous place. Yeah. And it's like, I've been to New York now. It's nice. It's safe. It's like, oh yeah. But yeah, it, it was really quite, quite petrifying. And, um, you know, there was also, we'll talk a bit about this as well in Maniac with, um, David Berkowitz and the Son of Sam Killings that happened just prior to both of these films where New York was really petrified. Like it was a, like, the whole the whole town was, you know, brought to a standstill by this this killer, this maniac on the street. Mm. I want to go back to uh, Pacino as a performer because I think uh, two of my favourites of the seventies of his were Panic in Needle Park and Dog. Yeah, Mountain. mine too. Love so, that. And he plays these really kind of broken men who are. There's a lot of pathos, but also there is a machismo as well. But it's a bit of a facade in both. Yeah. Uh, and I think with this one, you're totally right. It's like he's thrown into this, but he's sort of set up as kind of a soft guy, even though he's supposedly this hardened New York cop, but yeah. he's, he's soft. There's something soft about him. Um, and when he's thrown into this, he becomes hardened. It's like, a, it's kind of like a women in prison film in a way where you yeah. Because he's like, this is damaging me. And- like, you know, yeah, and she's hardened by the end of it. But what I love is a lot of the choices you use that a lot of critics at the time were like, oh, geez, you know, this is whatever, where um, you get the gay bar scenes and it's this, you know, you know, great punk bands like the Germs and stuff, and it's all sort of thumping and loud and aggressive. And then when he's with his girl, with Karen Allen, it's, mm. you know, classical music and it's all soft. So it's kind of playing on these ideas of, the straight world being soft and romantic and there's true love and the gay world just being about, you know, cock. (laughs) And and, and fisting. Yeah, I think that play on that is really interesting. And I think just going back to your point, Sally, about representation, I feel like films can just be films. I don't don't feel like films have to have this agenda, you know. I think that... Yeah, and you, you agree with me here as well. I've talked about this umpteenth times, but it's this whole, there's this notion that, representation I don't know has to have kind of everything being all you know painterly and lovely and and picture perfect and then it neuters things so when you end up getting characters who are kind of so ideal they become neutered they become really unsexual or uninteresting you know, people are complex, subcultures are complex, you know, different mm-hmm. cultures are complex and it's not possible to represent that in a whole way, I don't think. And, you know, to I think what uh, act up they were kind doing of that is naive. Of, yeah. Mm. I think the issue is they were sick of that trope constantly. Yeah, yeah. And I yep. think the, the thing that attracted Friedkin to this was this as a backdrop for a serial killer film because I think it is... It is it it's victim it does make its victims especially vulnerable because mm. it's a subculture that's not talked about because it's something that people kind of sneak off and do and you know had to kind of go and do in secret relative secrecy at that point that you know and then you know that sort of taking someone home and 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 you know sort of giving yourself a yeah it's it's this very 
vulnerable state and and it, you know uh, there's a lot less you know i guess at that time in particular there's a lot less safeguards you know yeah to sure people from so- that if, if you are interested in checking out cruising, and I think that we all suggest that you do, it is now available to rent or buy on YouTube and Google Play and iTunes as well, I think. You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. Tonight we are celebrating films that are turning 40 and we've looked at cruising, which obviously the Germans was just from that soundtrack, and now we are going to shift tones entirely as we rediscover Robert Redford's directorial debut, Ordinary People. All he wants is to know that you don't hate him. That's hate it. him? God, how could I hate him? Mothers don't hate their sons. Is that what he told you? Do you see how you accept what he says with no questions and you can't do the same thing I'm for me, I'm just trying to keep this family God, I together. don't know what anyone wants from me anymore. Tormented by uh, the guilt following the, the death of his older brother Buck in a sailing accident, alienated teenager Conrad Jarrett, played by Timothy Hutton, attempts suicide. Returning home following an extended stay in a psychiatric hospital, Conrad tries to deal with the mental anguish and also reconnect with his emotionally cold mother, Beth, played by Mary Tyler Moore, and his supportive father, Calvin, played by Donald Sutherland, who is trying to keep his family together. Ordinary People took home Best Picture, Best Director, Best Supporting Actor and Best Screenplay based on material from another medium um, at the uh, 1981 Academy Awards. And now 40 years later, the wonderful Lee Gambon, who is here with us tonight, is writing a book all about it. Um, So, Lee, what is it about Ordinary People that you find so compelling that you're writing an entire book on it? Ah, God, that's really tricky to answer (laughs) because, yeah, I fell in love with it as a kid seeing it. I thought it was compelling even seeing it as a five-year-old. I think I was five and it was on really late at night and I watched it. Um, And I read the novel multiple times and just fell in love with it. Also, I grew up a big fan of Mary Tyler Moore and the show and just seeing her doing this role was so different. Like, you know, this is America's sweetheart and Robert Redford being so ingenious, just so clever casting, you know, America's sweetheart as this cold, horrendous woman, um, you know, who you know, it was just this sort of unfeeling person uh, who breaks at one moment in the movie and it's by herself, so no one sees her. It's brilliant stuff. Um, but, yeah, just really love the performances, what it says about, um, you know, what's under the surface. So it's mm-hmm. kind of like, you know, this uh, this whole sort of real good case study or character study on, on repression and grief um, and also about connection and disconnect and what it says about um, sort of, you know, breaking out of the grief and sort of coming out of that grief was really sort of, I I guess that's really interesting to me just to watch that as an audience Mm -hmm. member. I think it's really compelling. So with this book and this kind of um, construct of this book as a a monograph dedicated to ordinary people, I've interviewed a bunch of people and one of them was Dinah Manoff who plays his friend who kills herself in the the film. Um, And she said that when she got the script or when she heard about the film, she was like uh, perplexed as to why an audience we want to see a film like this she's like mm. you know because this was a period where people didn't want to really see or invest in these kind of you know heavy family-based dramas that aren't very 
you know, could not, might not be that cinematic. Um, but she was blown away with the, the end result because it was so compelling. And then speaking to someone like Jeff Canoe, who edited it, he was like telling me stories about how Redford wanted all the editing to be kind of slightly off kilter. So when they were, when they have those establishing shots at the beginning of the film showcasing the, you know, the, the, the suburbs and the house and the parklands, et cetera, there's a weird timing to it. And Jeff Canoe would be like, oh, it's all sort of out of sync. It's kind of too, you know... Uh, you know, there's too many delays here and there. And Redford was like, no, that's the purpose of it. You're presenting this kind of halcyon, picturesque, beautiful um, landscape of this sort of, you know, vision of perfect Americana, the American suburb, but there's something off. Um, and that's what the film sort of details throughout. I think that's what I like about it. Also, I kind of come to it as a horror film. I read it as a horror film. It's got these really interesting tropes that are used in horror films of that period, like quiet moments with a stairwell or you know, um, uh, sort of frenzied editing with the flashbacks. So it's really got a lot of really, it's got a really beautiful visual language, I think, that Redford delivers so beautifully. And the performances are just friggin' incredible. I think they're a they're perfect sort of uh, study on acting, a lot of them. Um, Sutherland is just magnificent. Mary Tyler Moore's amazing. And Timothy Hutton, Elizabeth McGovern, they're all just brilliant. And also... Um, that whole period of the sort of troubled young male sort of syndrome movies that were coming out in all genres. I think that one's kind of like a real pinnacle moment of it, of for it. And also what it says about fathers and sons, um, because that's seldom discussed really in this kind of um, landscape. So if you look back at something like melodramas and you look at something like Rebel Without a Cause, you know, Jim Backus's character is so pathetic and worn out and James Dean doesn't respect him. Um, and then you fast forward to something like Ordinary People and you have Timothy Hutton reconnecting with his dad who is giving and generous and nurturing. He's the nurturer um, mm. where you've normally seen women and mothers being the nurturer. So it's kind of a really interesting take on that. And also 1980 is a really interesting year for fathers and sons. You mentioned in your opening, Sally, um, uh, Empire Strikes Back, you know, that's the year Luke Skywalker finds out his father's <laughs> Darth Vader. And even in Robert Altman's um, treatment of Popeye, you know, Popeye reconnects with Packy. And there's all this sort of interesting stuff. And also fathers kind of having to be the sensitive role in this period, mm -hmm. Kramer versus Kramer the year before. So that's a really interesting point as well. So there's a whole the lot Shining. of... Shining. Yeah, The Shining, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Amityville Horror. So, yeah, the, the sins of the father, absolutely. But, um, yeah, I really like that aspect. And also what it says about masculinity and and the sort of glimmering bits of hope in in Conrad's life are people are, you know characters like the Elizabeth McGovern character or the Frederick Lean character who's his friend um you know who gives a really lovely performance interestingly enough he's his sort of career trajectory ended up going into sort of bad guys. Um, <laughs> uh, I just rewatched all. I watched all of Hotel, the Aaron Spelling series, and he had, in the second <laughs> last episode, he tries to rape um, Julie. Like it's and then he's in like Man's Best Friend, where he's like Ali Ali Sheedy's boyfriend. And he tries to poison the poor dog and stuff. So his career went sort of all dark. Um, <laughs> like ordinary people, he's his best friend. Um, and yeah, I just love all that stuff and that, you know, the sequences and the, and the dialogue and the writing and just how um, the tension builds in that film. And you're like, far out, this movie's heavy. And mm. it, it's really, really kind of, um, there's kind of like a cathartic element, even though it's such a grim piece, like it's about death and about loss. Um, but there's this sort of cathartic element to it that I think is really rewarding. Mm. Paul, what did you think of Ordinary People? Well, I so it's interesting you enjoyed this so much at five, Lee, because I saw this in high school and it completely bounced off me. Like I remember my friends and I just constantly 
because like a dumb high school is being shown these films. I didn't even know what the context was. I, I, I was always shown Happy Gilmore at high school. <laughs> I don't know what that says about the school that I went to, but that was what they always screamed. A lot is what it <laughs> But yep. like my friends and I kept like, I know my friend Matt and I just constantly were going, do you, do you want to talk, Conrad? Do you need to talk, Conrad? Conrad, do you want to talk for like weeks afterwards? <laughs> um, just taking the piss. But I'm so glad I had this opportunity to rediscover it all these years later, like um, um, some 30 years later, because this is such an intelligent, finely observed and emotionally honest examination of this sort of upper middle class wasp family kind of hollowed out by the loss of their son and brother and the different ways each person has dealt or not with the passing um, and how opening up to those feelings begins to to let at least some of them free. Um, you could you could almost call it you know like it's a very white story. We call this ordinary white people, but um, my God, as you said, Lee, the the performances are incredible from everyone. Judd Hirsch as well as as the psychiatrist, oh, yes. but Mary Tyler Moore is something else. Like I I don't think anything is sort of seen from her career before this prepares you for this. Um, she's quite, she's such this contained kind of bit like, bit like Bruce Lee and Fist of Fury last week, like a contained yeah. ball of rage. Um, and it's so interesting. Like she's this kind of control freak. I might you there in the book. <laughs> Please do. Um, a control freak refusing to acknowledge her feelings, especially towards, you know, Conrad, um, her surviving son, which seemed to have evaporated. Um and it's it's interesting because you kind of look at her as like, okay, you're sort of, if this film has an antagonist, she's it. But, you know, you could also look at, like, because Kelvin, Donald Sutherland, is trying so hard to, to, to be good to Conrad and bring out Conrad and bring his family together that maybe mm-hmm. he's focused a bit too much on Conrad and not, not enough on her. And she's thought, you know, frozen out in the, in the cold. I don't know. But it's such an intriguing family dynamic and this is exactly the kind of film that even looking at it from the outside you could think oh, this is going to collapse into a puddle of sentimentality or worthy doldrums or kind of actively fireworks like one of those films where people just shout at each other but it's none of those things like it's it's so it's almost social realism in a lot of ways mm. for the middle class like it's it's this very beautifully judged um and very restrained and i think a lot of that's redford because redford's such a restrained guy in general and his, you know, his approach to life and, uh, you know, the man lives in, you know, bloody, what is it, Utah, for Christ's sake. Um, you know, like, he's this sort of um, very, very restrained, uh, measured approach to everything. Elvin Sargent's screenplay is really beautiful. And I think the actors, the screenplay and Redford all are so willing to dig beneath the cliches and find the humans and humanity beneath and it's just it's just a really great story, elegantly told um, mm. and, and really moving. Yeah, I think I saw this for the first time not so long ago, maybe about 10 years ago. I definitely didn't see it when I was younger. And it is such an, it is such an incredible film. And like you've both said, all these performances are absolutely amazing in it. And Lee, what you were saying about Donald Sutherland's character, Calvin, having to be this nurturer, I think, well, I don't know, for me, it's always jarring when I see a film, uh, we have this, this kind of cold mother that Beth Mary Tyler Moore's character is because I guess, you know, we're really fed about how nurturing mothers should be and how they should act away even, you know, in this situation where she has lost a child. Um, 
And I, I completely agree with you, Paul, that there's perhaps um, Donald Sutherland's character isn't giving her that that space and that love that perhaps she needs as well. She is so, I guess, unlikable in this film, but there's something for me that in, in her that I really feel for her. I, I really, really feel for her in this way that, you know, people are, are told how to parent, people are told how to mother and that you can't have the, you, you can't be like that, you can't mother that way. And that clip, the sound clip that we played leading into this and she said a mother can't hate her son. And, yeah, I, I think some of my favourite performances are from when, um, women are playing roles like this, like obviously this one and Tilda Swinton in uh, We Need to Talk About Kevin I think is really, really incredible as well where we see these how mothers shouldn't be portrayed and it is. It really takes me aback and I find it really jarring to watch. And um, Timothy Hutton is so beautiful in this film. What you were saying before, Lee, we see these glimmers of hope and each time I see this film it's this kind of thing where we go, how is this going to end? How is this going to end? There's no way this can end well. And that really incredible scene where he um, is out on the date and he's opening up to her and it's so, you know, you can see that there's this relief coming through him by being able to talk to somebody. And I think it really captures that honesty of teenagers and being teenagers being able to talk to each other as well. Um, and then he kind of gets just trampled on with, you know, noise and he gets drowned out, which is yeah, it's such a beautiful, like incredible, hurtful moment to see in a mm. film. But yeah, this is yeah, it is. It's a really powerful film, like you said, Lee. It is very grim, and yeah, it's it's really heartbreaking. Yeah, um, Elizabeth McGovern. So she gave a wonderful interview as well, which was really beautiful to hear from her because I loved her in Ragtime, the performance film, and mm-hmm. a bunch of things. That great film with Steve Gutenberg she was in. Is it The Secret Window or The Bedroom Window? The Bedroom Window. <laughs> bedroom Window, yeah, great film. Um, but, yeah, she, she was great. She gave great insight, and she was talking about how Redford directed, and Redford basically let them sort of do a lot of what um, they wanted to do in a sense, but, with you know, with obvious restraint but he just really trusted his performers and really wanted to sort of um let them sort of uh dramaturg how scenes would go and how they'd read and pan out she gave me some great examples which I can't wait to share with the book but I love that he cast the two leads against type I think that's really interesting so Mm. like I said with Mary Tyler but also Donald Sutherland so prior to this you have things like Day of the Locust um, you know, uh, things like Invasion of the Body Snatchers just before it, um, obviously MASH, things like that. So it's very different. This is a sensitive character. You know, even in Clute, he's kind of, you know, pent up and weird, you know. Um, how many, but, sorry, how many classics can one guy be in? Like, yeah, like of all those titles, they're all bangers. Yeah. I, yeah. Very good. It's very good. <laughs> yeah, that performance breaks me, Cal, because there's those moments where he tries to, you know, get the friends over, let's play touch football and, you know, how are you going with swimming? You know, just really overly engaged and it's really heartbreaking to watch because it's so, it's so earnest and there's something yes. really, there's something really palpable about it. But also just that final moment where he sort of tells her that he's not in love with her anymore and also just sort of how she's obsessed with a facade, like, you know, the, the, yeah. I mean, that, yeah. that party sequence that just tells that she gets, she turns mm-hmm. when he, mentions a psychiatrist um and then he throws it back on her and he says oh you know having a psychiatrist is a status status thing which goes Good back point, to what you're yeah. saying Paul, about 
white, you know, and that film is very white, absolutely. It's about uncovering and unmasking the the sort of horrors and ugliness of the white middle class, the white upper mm. middle class, mm-hmm. um, yeah. which is really interesting when you see those films sort of pop, popping up uh, in the early 80s and theatres doing it 10 years earlier uh, when you think of like Sondheim doing something like Company, which sort of throws the, the mirror back on the audiences who are coming to these things. Um, saying, well, look, you guys are all fucked up <laughs> and it's great. So it's really smart stuff. And also I like that Redford chose this as his first property. I think that's really interesting. Mm. Yeah, what, why was that? Do you Like why was he compelled to this? He loved the book. He loved the material and just wanted to do something about people, about um, the human condition. Um, and I think also it was kind of like much like people like Paul Newman and Warren Beatty and stuff, there's this interesting parallel between these kind of what they'd call, you know, consider pretty boy actors who can actually deliver amazing works as a director or a producer. Like, and I think that's him sort of sort of proving to him to the to the you know to the industry that he can do this. Um, and he proves it beautifully. And most of his films I've really loved, um, his directorial work. Mm. When when can we expect the book, Lee? Oh, How far off is it? Ages. Don't ages. Know. So um, Ordinary People is obviously comes very highly recommended from all of us. Uh, it's available to rent or buy on YouTube and Google Play. And, of course, when Lee's book about Ordinary People comes out, buy it. It's going to be great. You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. You're listening to Primal Screen on 3RRR with Paul Anthony Nelson, Lee Gambon and myself, Sally Christie. Tonight we are celebrating films that are turning 40. So just prior to our sponsors, we talked about William Friedkin's Cruising and Robert Redford's Ordinary People. And you heard... Oh, I don't know how to um, pronounce it properly, so I'm just going to call it Joy of Man's Desire by Bach. <laughs> um, and now for our final film of the evening. Horror movie opened tonight in Hollywood officially and all over the Los Angeles area. There's a lot of controversy over this one, which is why we're paying attention to it. Feminists in particular have said that this is a film that promotes harm to women. And Martin has more on it right now, Anne. Christine, the movie is Maniac, and the billboards themselves are pretty gruesome. Moviegoers tonight told me the plot is, a man who hated his mother goes out and kills women. Besides the billboard, the picture is also advertising as the movie the L.A. Times wouldn't run ads for. Now President Eleanor Smeal had this reaction to the billboard. All I can say is, is that when you talk about violence towards women and brutality, this just typifies it. And I think that it is uh, shocking and it contributes to the injury of women. Uh, In Maniac, a traumatic childhood leads a deranged mama's boy on a gruesome killing killing spree on the streets of New York City. Frank, played by Joe Spinell, who also wrote the film, is loose in New York killing women and taking their scalps as trophies. But when Frank meets photographer Anna, played by Carolyn Monroe, well, he turned his gruesome ways around. As we heard from the soundbite, at the time of the release 
its release in 1980, Maniac was highly, highly controversial for the image on the poster, which is still pretty brutal, and also its portrayal of violence against women. But as the years have passed, it's now renowned as one of the best slashes of all time. Um, this was my pick for the evening, but, Paul, I want to hear what your thoughts are on Maniac first. Ah, Joe Spinell, you brilliant, lumpy, wild-eyed, sweaty, weirdly charismatic bastard. He's just great, isn't he? I miss him every day. I think he's so great. Yeah. And talk about, like, again, talk about a film that captures grimy New York. Mm. This is another one. Uh, This could be just down the street from cruising. Um, And that you you wind up in 1979-80 New York and Joe Spinell just appears. (laughs) It's like Candyman. He's there. He's everywhere. He's there. He's just hanging out. He's, you know, uh, he's cruising in a park or, you know, taking someone's scalp. Who else, though? But what other actor would invest so much in a character like this, commit so devoutly to a performance like this? It's like, like this guy, like Spinell is a guy who pelled around with everyone from Sliced Alone to Steven Spielberg. Like he was, the man was connected. Like everybody seemed to like him. And yeah. He decided to push all of his chips. I mean, he's in The Godfather, for Christ's sake. Like, decided to push all of his chips on a film that, like, he actively co-devised and produced into this observational character study dressed in the shambling, blood-soaked clothes of the grimiest slasher picture since The Last House on the Left. Like, it's kind of wonderful that this is the thing he chose to do. Um, Having said that, like... The thing that got me this time around, I mean, I've seen it a few times, but on this viewing, um, the Bill Lust, William Lustig's direction, the suspense in this film is great. Yeah, like, is- there's there's a scene set in a where um, a, car- a woman hides in a in a in a bathroom at a station. Um, and it's like it's like Hitchcock, like it's just it's, it's excruciating. That for me is one of the most petrifying scenes that I've, I've ever seen committed to screen. Like, it's frightening. And every time I watch it, it's frightening. It is terrifying. And, yeah, I think that, that Lustig really fills the whole film with this dread, and it's kind of sad for every character involved. And I think, while I, I don't know how much script, the insight the script gives into Frank's psychology, the production design in his bedroom tells you everything you need to know. Mm-hmm. And... Micro-budget slasher films from 1980 are not films renowned for their production design. But this is a film that's it's so the art in his room is so detailed and tells you so much about who Frank is. I love, I really like Carolyn Monroe in this. I think yeah. I, and every time you see her, it's like she doesn't really flirt or lead him on so much as she's found this strange man-sized puppy that follows her around and she's just really nice to him. And and it's like she, she's always good with boundaries and always like, no, this is, but, you know, it's just, she's just kind and which makes the the climax play even better and, and sadder. Um, and Tom Savini, both with his peerless boundary shoving makeup effects and his small role as a 3am Lothario is just a gift. He, um, God, I, I saw this at a screening, um, two years ago at the Egyptian Theatre in LA with nice. William Lusty was doing a Q&A afterwards and I was sitting in between Eli Roth and Lee Wynell and they were just totally having um, a moment the entire <laughs> film. Like <laughs> it was really incredible. But William Lusty told this incredible story about um, Tom Savini and that 
that one uh, shot that he's in, how he wanted to take the goriest uh, kill for himself. So he worked <laughs> hard on setting it up and, you know, having this big kill. But, yeah, it was yeah, pretty great. Ali, what do you, what do you think about Maniac? It's interesting because um, there's uh, Tom Savini in the past has said Maniac was one of his least favourite films to work on because he's not a fan of that kind of film, whatever that means. But, you know, he's always championed something like Creepshow, working on something like Fluffy and Creepshow, yeah. like Monsters. But his work in Maniac's brilliant because it's just so, there's an operatic element to it. It's, you know, it's grandiose. But just going, touching back on what you were talking about, Paul, uh, no, both of you, uh, about the idea of psychology, the psychology of this character, it also stems from this kind of domestic abuse in childhood. And a lot of slasher films that do that and take the time to do that deliver a, a lot more of a visceral sort of, there's a more of a visceral edge to them for some reason, maybe mm-hmm. because your brain goes, oh, fuck, these people had such traumatic experiences as a kid. One that springs to mind is a really underrated slasher film that you you guys love, but everyone out there should go and search for and find, which is Visiting Hours, a Canadian film with Michael Ironside, who is terrifying in that movie. And that film has fantastic performances from Lee Grant and Linda Earl, et cetera. Even William Shatner's in there. But um, Maniac, to me, um, you, you mentioned earlier in the introduction, Sally and um, Paul Alexandra Hala Nicholas, I really love what she has written on that film and said about, spoken on that film. I've seen her speak on it. And about the Carolyn Munro character who basically turns the, the, the sort of the perspective of the POV around and it becomes her focus. And you're totally right, Paul. She's this kind of character who's just lovely and giving and she'll give to this man who is demented and so he can't commit to killing her there's this kind of disconnect because he sees her as as a human um but some the art direction is just fantastic it kind of reads like a like a weird sort of throwback to something like um um you know tourist trap and even earlier things like lisa and the devil and all these other films is you know this kind of nightmarish dreamlike quality throughout it but, um, uh, yeah, it's a friggin' awesome film. And Joseph Bernal, amazing, amazing. Yeah, he's, he's great in everything he pops up in. Like, you'll pop up in something like Stay Hungry, and you're like, wow, okay, you're in this as well. Or you'll pop up in, as you say, The Godfather. Like, I, <laughs> where did you end? Like, where, well, we know. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, really, really sadly. But, uh, yeah, really, really amazing performance and a great character study and something that kind of, it's one of those slasher movies that lives outside of what people would consider the body count you know, teen-centric slasher movies. It's more of a sort of case a case study of this guy's psychosis. Um, but, yeah, I love its griminess and its, its sort of relentless ugliness. I really do. It's on par with something like Cruising. Mm. Yeah. It's- and it's those um, really, like, close-up shots of Joe Spinell and he's all sweaty and it's just, yeah, this really in-your-face kind of, you know, ugliness. It really does have that. And I think it's, I, you know, I've played that soundbite about the controversy surrounding this film and I think it's important to talk to that and the way that, like I was saying before with cruising, I think it's it's too easy to reduce a film to being, no, this is bad, this portrays violence against women. I think it's a very interesting um, comment on violence against women. And like I said before, I do think this movie is very frightening and it plays on those anxieties. But I think it's fascinating how we start off with Joe Spinell's character and his first victim is a sex worker and then this becomes this then it becomes a professional woman and then you know the prey becomes somebody that's very close to him and it just gets this kind of more inner circle which i i think is a really clever comment on domestic violence where it's like a you know 
it is mainly people that are close to you that, you know, do commit these horrendous acts. And it goes from, yeah, being outside and getting closer and closer and closer in, which throughout the progression of the film, which I think is really fascinating. And I mean, over time, I think, I don't think it is viewed so harshly as just being too, too, uh, too much of a focus on violence against women. If we look at something like I spit on your grave, that, has been, you know, protested and things like that as well, which is now almost championed as a feminist film. I'm not calling Maniac a feminist film by any means, but um, I don't think it is anti-female either. I think that it really explores those anxieties that women have all the time in such um, a confronting way, like a really confronting way. But, yeah. Herb films of that period that do, like Ms. 45 and, yep. you know, urban landscape movies about women being preyed upon. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Maniac is definitely one of them. I love what you said about how the, the progression of the victims. You're totally mm-hmm. right. It's like, you know, the, and it's it kind of, it's funny because the film that popped to mind was Alligator where yes. no one acts on al- the alligator, the mutated alligator, because he starts in the ghetto, then he, then he goes mm-hmm. to the working class and middle class, and the end he finally goes, he crashes the wealthy part of the wedding. And yep. it's like that we respond to some situations. So that's when we respond to, um, you know, dire situations or, or crisis. Yeah. It's when attacking people who are, you know, higher up end. Economically, you know? so yeah. Really yep. a commentary on, yeah, like the, the neglect of people like sex workers. Yeah, exactly. And, mm. and 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 that said, it's like, you know, initially at the start, if a sex worker is killed and uh, where, when she is killed, it's like, oh, how would he ever get away with that? Hey, it's New York mm. in 1979. He probably would have, you know. But if it's somebody that is, um, you know, a, a professional sort of photographer, well-to-do, then that's a different story. And also the um, I won't spoil what it is, but the final scene in um, this is just absolutely fantastic yeah. and you know, that kind of. <laughs> real sort of feminist moment it really is that that is that really really is and and i I was just gonna say i think it's echoed too by the fact that that uh frank uh spinel's character is so pathetic like he's such a sad pathetic person i found lots of parallels with this and when we're talking about american psycho the other week very different Mm. character to patrick bateman but they're both completely pathetic and they're not desirable in any way it's not Mm. like any man is going to watch this and go oh they're cool i want to go and do that like it's just not gonna happen but if you are interested in subjecting yourself to maniac and you should because it's really bloody good um it is now available to stream on shutter This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au. You've been listening to Primal Screen on 3RRR with Paul Anthony Nelson, Lee Gambin and myself, Sally Christie. On tonight's show, we've been celebrating films that are turning 40 this year. So released in 1980 and we discussed Cruising and Ordinary People, which are both available to buy or rent on iTunes, uh, YouTube and Google Play and Maniac, which is available to stream on Shudder. You can listen back to the show within half an hour on Triple R On Demand or check out the songs that we played on the Primal Screen page at 
rr.org.au right now. You can also subscribe to the Primal Screen podcast via iTunes or wherever else you find your favourite podcasts. A big, big thank you to the wonderful Carl Chapman, who without him this show would not run for panelling and doing producing duties, and to Tyler. Oh, my God, I'm going to say Tyler's surname wrong. Paul, help me out. Deglish, sorry, Tyler. I'll get it better. I'll, I'll, I'll learn it next time. <laughs> for taking care of our podcast. Thanks for listening to Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. 